Live live from the mats of Radical MMA in New York City, the Martial Culture Podcast. Your source for in-depth combat sports and martial arts insights with, with Coach, Coach Renee Dreyfus and, and Matt Peters. Peters. Ring the bell and let's, let's get, get it, it on. Ah, uh, feels good to be back. We haven't been here since last year. I know. And uh, we didn't even have a chance to talk about the John Jones debacle that much. Uh, but we have something more important to talk about today. Uh, for, Renee, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, and Thank it's great you. to be back. Yes. Uh, but we have a very important guest on the phone. Uh, lay the stage for him, would you, Renee? Yes. Yeah, so I uh, very uh, just finished reading this, our current guest a book. Um, his name's Lewis Martin. And Lewis, uh, your book is True Believers, and it was a fantastic read. And um, it's really uh, – I think it's an important book for anybody who's interested in uh, martial arts culture and the abuse of martial arts culture in terms of not not just you know controlling people and, and becoming cult like. Uh, um, and and your experience is really interesting. And every single t- time I turn the page, uh, I, I was I was like, oh, I can relate to that. I understand that. I, I can see people, and as a student, I can see people come from those worlds because I I did come from the traditional world, and so some traditional people su- seek me out. And I can see, oh, you were kind of victimized by the traditional world in some ways. You know, that's not to say that all traditional academies are like that. I don't mean that at all. But, but uh, you have a, a very wonderful and unique experience. I wouldn't say unique, but but a unique way of, of explaining it. And I'll let the floor go to you and introduce yourself. And uh, I'm so happy to have you on and, and that we can discuss uh, your awesome work. Great, thanks, Renee. That was a great introduction. Um, yeah, thank you, Renee and Matt, and good to talk to you in person. Um, thank you so much for for reading the book. It was. Uh, you never get used to listening to a podcast and hearing your own name mentioned and being like, "Oh shit!" Like, there's people in New York that, um, you know, that 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 read it, which is amazing. And and I feel like a lot of people that have read it have reached out to me. the The cool thing about this book is everyone reading it is a martial artist. So, in the world of martial arts, there's a lot of experiences like this, and and you see it a lot um, referred to kind of as a joke if you follow. You know, someone like McDojo Life or, right, um, right, right. or or fake black belts on Instagram. Those are great pages, and and they're very entertaining and they're funny. But there's a serious side to those things too, which is um, in often in traditional martial arts, there is a lot of weird kind of pseudo religion, mysticism, false promises, and people can really get hurt by that uh, emotionally, financially. They can get hurt by it. So I guess my book was sort of more of the serious side of things, based on being a part of a, a really intense group for um, for seven years and, you know, starting as a brand new student when I was just barely 21 years old, going all the way to Black Belt and being an instructor. And then along the way, you know, ignoring signs, uh, paying quite a bit of money and, and even losing some, some friendships and relationships because I was so caught in um, their kind of system, their pseudo-religious uh, uh, philosophy that... Um, you know, I, I ignored a lot of things, and, and I finally came out of it, and I was like, God, this would be one hell of a book. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you, you to laugh at it on, on the outside, but it's not funny when if you're that person, you know, who's experienced it. And I, I have a lot of people who came from, you know, I started in the traditional Japanese martial art world. I lived in Japan for a long time. And, uh, you know, coming uh, as a reality-based practitioner now in MMA, I have a lot of people who say, yeah, I spent – you know, 10 years doing ninjutsu. I spent 10 years doing Aiki, Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, Aikido. And, uh, you know, I, I can't actually fight. 
and uh, I, I want to learn how to fight. And, 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 and also, it's funny, I'll tell you something, as an instructor uh, who's teaching uh, not just jiu-jitsu, but, but uh, wrestling, judo, striking, you can see the damage done to their operating system, their physical operating system by sham martial arts. Sham martial arts overwrite our internal body code, and it actually makes me much harder to teach you functional movement. So uh, my, my, one of my favorite videos example is this crazy Russian weird martial art. They're, they're moving in such bizarre patterns, uh, even worse than the worst kung fu. And I'm like, wow, to take someone who did that for a year and teach them actually how to move um, is terrible. And that's just the physical side. Is, and I see it as a, as, a, as a victimization of their athletic potential. And of course – being America and being a capitalist society, there is always a victimization on the money level or what I think is, is very common is, you know, just uh, controlling instructors who have an ego complex, uh, you know, John Jones, uh, 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 Jamestown, you know, uh, what's the, the guy from Jamestown? Did, did, Jim Jones? Jim Jones, right, not John Jones. Uh, you know, Jim Jones <laughs> complex <yet>. where they <laughs> just want to want to dominate people as a, as a sociopath and a psychopath. And uh um, it, it's it's terrible, but I, I, one thing I it really I don't want to reveal the book because I really want listeners to go out and read it, especially people who've done martial arts for a long time. Because what I want to talk about a little bit is, of course, your experience. But one thing you said very interesting. You're like, well, this in the Sabukan, which is a dojo he trained in for our listeners. You know, that was it was a step by step process from you know something that was kind of legitimate and maybe had some good ideas, and then it was like a, a ladder into a bizarre land and. I would say those first three steps, you know, of any any, uh, what do you want to call it? Ideology. Usually, they hook you with something that is that is, you know, you can relate. Okay, uh, I would say Jordan Peterson is a good example of someone who's, you know, the first couple things he said is is very relatable, and then he takes you into bizarre land, you know. And and I think that's true with any ideology. Is that the first steps are are rational and they hook you and they hook you with with certain things whether your desire to 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 be part of a tribe your desire your insecurities something like that and they get you deeper deep in the ladder and the other thing is i would say that most martial arts i've encountered encountered have some element of these you know the ideology and indoctrination and we had an offline conversation about you know uh, a certain academy where you know the, you 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 leave your crunch your trader and you know things like that I would say that even if you're not on the eighth step into the bizarre land, there's certain martial arts that they take that first four or five steps and you're not in a healthy environment. But I'll, I don't want to over talk to you, but but say more about your experience and and um, and how you 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 felt yourself maybe go into that world and also how you got out. Totally. So, you know, when we see videos of of school's on the internet and there's an old fat dude and he's he's chi blasting people left and right and knocking them out we see it in a in a vacuum and it's ridiculous and we look at it and we say man who are those idiots that are training under that guy but maybe what we don't think is that you know you don't show up on the very first day and they're like cool we're going to show you how to chi blast someone it's it's a step by step process and i feel like there's two types of school Renee. there's there's Young people in particular, when you go into martial arts, like you have a fantastic idea of what fighting is, and it's based off, you know, you've seen movies or television or something like that. So you have a fantasy. And one school will 
set you down and say, okay, like everything that you thought that fantasy is basically bullshit and we're going to show you kind of how it works and it's, it won't be the easiest thing in the beginning, but eventually you'll get skilled at it. And then the other school kind of embraces that fantasy and they say, yeah, we're going to show you all that stuff. You know, we will show you how to effortlessly you throw people, knock people out. We're going to show you how, you know, the energy meridians and the body work. And yeah, eventually maybe we'll even show you how to move people without touching them. And with Seibukan, and I want to stress this, this is not a book about me learning an ineffective martial art because honestly, and unfortunately that's not super special, right? There's, yeah. It's very, tons very, of, yeah. Tons of ineffective martial arts yeah. and, a lot of that, you know, the practitioner has to take 50% of the responsibility in addition to their teacher because there's plenty of information out there for people to figure stuff out. What this is really about is a martial arts community that pivoted to being a self-help group. And it did it sort of under the guise of martial arts, but you walk in the first day and, and it's like, yeah, we're going to train you to defend yourself and give you physical tools. But then pretty quickly it leads into, well, you're going to be a, a better person through these physical tools. And and then it goes into, well, you can maybe heal traumas in, in your life through these uh, tools of these martial arts. And and then you get into full-blown this, this pathway to enlightenment. And there's a big difference between, you know, marketing martial arts and self-defense and marketing self-help. And there's a difference in the pressure that you put on the instructors that they have to take on this weird role of being like a therapist or a spiritual leader or a motivational speaker. And you are attracting students a different way. You know, the, yeah. in you, you run a, 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 a mixed martial arts gym and you know, you're attracting people that uh, they want to train or they want to fight and, and they're tough. They want to be physical and you're just meeting them on those grounds of like, okay, this is a physical place. We're going to get in shape and, and we're going to train and learn to fight. But we were attracting people that were almost kind of like little lost puppies, you know, a lot of younger people, people that, um, you know, they weren't quite sure where they fit in the world, their jobs, their careers weren't working out. And instead of saying, Hey, you're going to come here and, and learn martial arts. I mean, yeah, we would say that, but it was really like, Hey, you're going to come here and, and we're going to get your shit together personally, emotionally. Um, and I think that could get a little bit insidious and it can kind of walk the line a little bit. Do you think so? Absolutely. I totally agree. But I, I would, I would say a couple things that when I said this on another podcast and, and I think this is true for every martial arts school, whether you're talking full on MMA or, you know, Aikido on the other end or whatever, martial arts attracts broken people. Hmm. Um, in some way, whether either one, you're victimized and you want to learn how to fight, or two, you have some extrinsic goal like, you you know, look at the UFC. Look at John Jones. You know, he's not a healthy guy. <laughs> like, like let's look at, I mean, he's a great fighter, but he's not a healthy guy. You know, like there's a there are more John Joneses in the UFC than there are, say, um, you know, okay, you know what here? Damian Maya, who's a, you know, obviously a, a really, good really good, wonderful, wonderful person. Like, obviously, like he's got his stuff together. He... You know, he's just a person that you know is, you know, you wouldn't mind hanging out with and, and is a good role model for your kids or George St. Pierre. Something like that. There, there are fewer of those than they are of, especially at the lower level, uh, of these people who are, and I, I, I compete, you know, I mean, I have my guys compete on the lower level circuit and you see these people 
they they have nothing going for their lives. They have no direction. And MMA or martial arts is, is trying to bring that direction. I would say even in my school, I I have the role of therapist, and a lot of people come to me for help. I had one girl, unfortunately, she's passed away. Um, but um, she lost her battle to drugs, um, but she came in to, to change her life and make it better, and I tried to really be a part of that. And yes, we are a physical school, and we teach you how to be, but I would say a majority of our students are looking to look that martial path. You know, like look at all the kung fu movies, you know, the, the kid, or even Star Wars, it's the young kid who's naive, he doesn't know anything, and it's that Jedi training that transforms him. And that is the that is what martial arts sells almost universally, why do parents put their kids into kids' taekwondo? Discipline, focus, all these more mental issues. They don't want their kids to learn how to punt, beat the crap out of other people. They want them to develop their internal skills. And honestly, I would say, you know, I was listening to this great podcast on Stephen Casting, and he has a 11-time Ironman champion come on, and he's like, you want to be an elite-level competitor in any sport, you got to get your shit together. And that that's mm-hmm. obvious, you know? So I, I would agree with what you're saying, uh, but I would say that all academies have some sort of that, you know, broken, you know, sad puppy, broken system. And, and you, you can give them a, 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 a pathway to self-help, but at the same time, it's not bullshit and it's not wish fulfillment. Oh, you want to change your life? Guess what? It's going to be fucking hard work. And I think one of the things that, that you can see in almost any cult is that uh, – that people are looking for a charismatic leader, and and they're looking for an easy solution. And I, I one thing I was struck in your book was the the, the rap, rapid rate of promotion at, at SabreCon. I think that's good. And and you you talk about it really detailed in your book. It's like there's this little you know oxytocin boost, this this serotonin boost. Oh, you get this belt, you get this belt, you get this belt. You feel good, and it's 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 just an easy way to feel good about yourself. Whereas okay, I'm gonna fight through. You know the 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 worst side control pin I could ever get put in, and reach down deep into something that I have in my bones to fight through. And I want to give up. I want to give up, but I'm not. And that's where the change happens, in my opinion. And that's what happened to me because for me, I was I was a broken kid in a lot of ways. I I, I didn't have a bad upbringing, but I had no self confidence. And um, in martial arts was that pathway to just making myself a better version of myself. And I remember this one at a time I had in Japan where a person pinned me for 30 minutes straight, uh, Olympic world champion, uh, Olympic and world champion who weighed over 200, over 100 kilos, decided that he was going to you know, pin me for a good reason. And it was probably the worst experience of my life, but it changed me. And the minute, and I never got out, <laughs> I never got out of that pin, but I went unconscious from his pin. But um, it changed me in a way that I never feared another pin again. And also it gave me a little bit of iron in my soul. And the more you develop that iron, the more that, that personal transformation happens. And, uh, but I think that, that a concept of transformation can totally be abused. It has been for the most part in America. And, and you know, it becomes this, these gurus of self-help, whether it's, it's Bikram from yoga, whether it's like some Rajneesh you know, yoga thing or, or, or Aikido Chi Blast or whatever – you know, the idea that I'm going to help you change your life, and it's not going to be that hard, is total bullshit, you know? Anyway, that's that's kind of like how I, what I would respond to what you said there. But I would also say that, um, you know, another thing that struck me about the book is that the communities that these foster, and they become addictive communities, you know? Like, you like being with your friends, you like being there, and it just ropes you in even more, you know? It, you, you, don't, you, you don't have a place to be, and now you have a tribe. And the tribe is addictive because... We as humans crave our, our tribal relationships. 
you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does make sense. And, and again, I, you know, all martial arts groups have communities and, and I think by and large, they're all really, really healthy. So, you know, we weren't different than, than anyone else in that sense. What was different with our community is that one, um, I think we became pretty isolationist and some of that was because when we interacted with other people that did martial arts, we got uh, weird sort of alarmed reactions from them. And two was that we, whether it was conscious or not conscious, we structured our community to isolate ourselves, which is we had um, a very, like I mentioned before, we had a self-help system, but it was very um, sort of pseudo-religious. It was very much steeped in the old Japanese kind of Shinto culture with a lot of symbolism um, you know, special animals and, and metaphorical gates and stuff. And we talked about that all the time, even outside the dojo. And it became sort of a coded language. And then on top of that, we we spoke a lot of, you know, Japanese sort of vocabulary to each other. And all of that, when you add it together, it made it really difficult for us to bring outsiders into our group. And it was sort of a condition on being friends with with our community was you you have to train because otherwise we're not going to have you know, things to talk with you about to the point where we would have big uh, Seibukan parties. And, and yeah, eventually my wife was like, I can't go to these things. These people are fucking crazy. Like, I can't, <laughs> I don't know what they're saying. They're always trying to get me to train. Uh, and that was, you know, one red flag that I couldn't ignore. I was like, all right, you know, my wife is a, is a smart person. Like she knows me really well. And, and she's sort of nudging me that there's something going on here. So maybe I should listen. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, that part of the book was, and I, I lived in Japan for years. I speak Japanese and, um, that is a, that is bizarre what he created. <laughs> That's, I, I'm like, I don't think any Japanese person would look at that and, and see. But, you know, the Aikido world is 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 actually a very unhealthy world. And people don't realize that Aikido is also partly based on the Omoto-kyo religion, which is a cult um, created by Deguchi now. Who, and it's a, it's a cult. It's a weird cult. And so all the Aiki arts are somehow inflected by this. How that happened, even the non-Aikido arts that, that trace from – the Aikido side, but even when they're the Aikijutsu world, I think that's sort of osmosis, they trace into these, you know, cultish behaviors. Um, that's where, they, like, the hand clapping at the beginning of a lot of classes originated from. You know, yeah. Bujinkan, which is um, basically in, in Japan, that's like their their mainstream ninjutsu yeah. um, school. Like, they're really heavy into the old, like, uh, Mikio religion, which yeah. is like a Buddhist Shinto thing. And I found out way later... Uh, my teacher was actually a priest in that religion. At least that's what I had heard. I, I never actually yeah. talked to him about it, but I heard it from a bunch of people. And, you know, if you do ninjutsu um, in Japan, you know, they do a lot of the clapping, the, right. they do the hand signs. Right. Um, and what well, depends if you're under Japanese the word for it, I forgot. Right. Misogi. Right. You're talking about the yeah, that's the Hatsumi lineage. But, you know, there are a few other lineages right. in ninjutsu, and uh, Hatsumi is like full of shit. Like, all the, like, but he is, he is the, he is like the king charlatan. But, you know, for all those other ninjutsu guys out there, sorry, but that is a fact. Like, Hatsumi's style is just, that guy is a charlatan. But I totally get where you're coming from. And now I wanna, I wanna just uh, curve away from that. Um, just a little pivot. But how did you, you know, disengage? You, you mentioned your wife a little bit. How did you, you know, on your own, I, I think you, you had a, a, a experience with Gracie Jiu Jitsu, you mentioned. 
Um, how did you pivot away and and distance yourself from that and deprogram? Um, I think that's an important part of of, of the, the the discussion. You know. So I'll break it into two dimensions. One was the physical, and the other was sort of the the uh, the philosophical, emotional. So physically, I kind of broke away because I started cross training. And that was kind of rare in the dojo. Like we were not encouraged to cross train. We said that we were, but to us, cross train just meant doing another martial art under the same teacher in the same place, which is a separate thing. But, you know, basically I had a friend in college and he knew a little bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not much. And we trained together and he whooped my ass. And um, that was such a valuable experience for me because it was, it just planted a small seed of doubt that it's like, man, I... I'm, I was like a third degree black belt or something at the time. Um, and you know, he had been training for like a couple months or something like that. And, and he just, you know, took me down and controlled me. And, and I, I used every trick in the book that I could think of, but I realized I was kind of ill-equipped. So that started me down a long road of like, I started looking into ground fighting. Um, I started doing grace jujitsu because, um, at least the, the Torrance branch of the Academy Horian sons, um, they have a really, really approachable um, style of grace jiu-jitsu for people that are, you know, coming from traditional background or self-defense. So all that escalated until I ended up doing full-on, you know, sort of mainstream Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I was like, man, this is where it's at. Like this, this stuff is way more effective. And then the other path was, you know, how did I separate from sort of the control of, of the community and uh, the, the philosophical way of thinking? And I think a big part of that was I got older. You know, when I started, I was I was like, you know, 20 years old and I was very, very impressionable. Um, and, you know, this, this martial arts teacher, he just seemed like a master, a wise man on the mountain who had all this shit together. But eventually I graduated college. I, I started a career. I met a lot of other, you know, kind of smart, educated people. I, I met a girl. We got married and my life started kind of moving on. But I realized a lot of the people that I train with, like their lives were not moving on. And a big reason they weren't was because Sebukan was asking them to hold up on it and serve the martial art. And, you know, over the years, I saw a lot of people that they dropped out of college, they turned down job opportunities, they quit their job, or they just got a job working, you know, in fast food or whatever. And they did it all so they could keep training more you know, keep paying money to get promoted, to get another black belt rank. And, and for what? So they could just open another Sabacon school and, and then pay more dues um, to the, the system. And I had this juxtaposition where I was like, man, this, this martial art is, it's supposed to be helping people in their personal lives, but it's, it's kind of ruining some people. I mean, there were some people that they were just sort of like living in in squalor, you know, they're, they're renting a room uh, with, with five other people. And, but then in their, in their room, they have all their black belt certificates on their wall and they, they think that they're really successful. And I was like, dude, you're not successful at all. Like you're dirt broke, you know? Yeah. You're a seventh degree black belt in this system. But what does that really mean? Like, that's not translatable, you know, well, you're going to open your own school and, uh, and then just pay dues to Contra. Like that doesn't make sense for you personally, right? That's not going to help you be successful. You know, I, I I totally hear what you're saying, and uh, I, you know, it's all the hallmarks of a cult, a charismatic personality. Have you ever heard of Max Weber? He's a famous sociologist, and he 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 kind of um, focused on on uh, understanding our 
the founder of the the brand of the field of sociology, but understanding how our world works. And and he says, you know, there are three types of authority, and one is a charismatic, you know, authority. And and you can see that with the polit- current politics today, or you know, anyone who's out there who has has a, a way for people to follow them, whether it's the music world or whatever. There's a, there's a charisma, and it certainly seems like that that was what held the sway in in that world. But um, and and. Uh, it's it's disturbing because it obviously can be used to abuse people. Um, I would I would disagree though, um, in one sense that to say that it's kind of unique because I know guys who are on the BGA circuit or MMA and they're like they're super goal oriented for the, and they're destroying the lives in the same way. You know, like there's a little bit of cult in almost any martial art, and and it's very worrying. And I think sometimes we can we can look at the Japanese martial arts and see their abuse. And I think Japanese traditional martial arts are, are very prone to this, or Chinese traditional martial arts are very prone to this because they're very, um, they mix a charismatic authority and a and a traditional authority. And this is kind of the one other type of Weber's ideas of authority. And and it's sort of like this is this lineage, and we have this back in thousands of years, you know. And this, you know, on Wudang Mountain, the guy watched the crane, this, and we follow this path, and this, and and you get wrapped up into this cultural authority and and particularly when you're when you're in that confucian or that asian culture that is a is it's, it's it's their chains around your critical thinking you're like why do i do it cuz cuz my daddy told me that or my master told me that or whatever and you just respect it for respecting sake versus using your critical thinking and 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 going forward but you know it's funny one thing i really Can I say pre- something about absolutely. that yeah go ahead please 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 I, i've been thinking a lot about this and me and you talked about this the other day is that in the Japanese systems, I can't speak for you know other other cultures like the Chinese systems, but I imagine it's probably the same way. Is that you know for them martial arts is it it's part of it is historical preservation and and historical um, kind of recognition that it's like you said we're honoring our ancestors, we're honoring the masters, and if you want to change something, it's kind of like you're challenging our ancestors and challenging the masters. And that's one thing that was really different and and great when I got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because um, a lot of BJJ schools, except for the really traditional ones, you know, they they don't have that mentality and that they're like, hey, we, we're finding better ways to do it. You know, like I used to do the 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 triangle this way, but I found this little tweak and and it works much better for me this way. Try it out. And there's this sort of like open-mindedness that that um that is infused in Brazilian yeah. jiu-jitsu uh, culture, especially if people compete because then results is the only thing that matters. And it's like, hey, I found this better technique. Right. I want a, a match with it at a tournament. I'm using it forever now. And that's not what I would experience in traditional systems, which is like anyone that's done Aikido knows that you don't just go up to your Aikido teacher and are like, yeah, your way doesn't work good for me. It's not good for my body type. I do it this way. Like That could be interpreted as really disrespectful. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, but I would also say I totally agree with you, hundred percent. I'd also say one of the most evolving martial arts um, in the modern era is judo, and uh, although there is a traditional element, um, judo is constantly evolving, and it's very, very results oriented, and it's you know out of traditional Japanese culture. Although you know, obviously, Kano was a visionary, and he definitely distanced himself from the idea of like culture only, but there was there was results on the mat, and he was a he was a great critical thinker too. So. 
and Japan has this weird, and and you know, as a, a guy did my master's degree in Japanese, you know, history, and it's this weird dichotomy between those kind of cultural authorities and prove it. So hmm. you know, I'll tell you, you know what the most practiced form of jujitsu in Japan is today? It's Brazilian jujitsu. There's yeah, I heard you more, say that the other day. more Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools than any other style of jiu-jitsu in Japan today, unless you count judo as a style of jiu-jitsu, which you could, but you know, but that doesn't count either because like most of them are just funded by the government. You know, like high school, like, like, like a judo school in every high school, basically, you know? Yeah, it's so, part of it's a, it's an educational institution right, now. Right, judo. right. So, so you can't really compare judo. Outside of judo, there's no grappling art, no, no submission grappling art, or you know, offshoot of jiu-jitsu that's practiced more. Than Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Just, so they have this weird thing. They're like, okay, put up or shut up. And it's a part of Japanese culture to, to ping-pong between this sort of cultural reverence and no, that doesn't work. And when they shift, they really shift. If you look at the um, automobile manufacturing sector or something like that, you can see that they have these um, – you know, these sea changes where they drop one paradigm and enter another very quickly. Like, okay, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And the Meiji Restoration was uh, was a, a part of Japanese culture where they basically – Japan was the country that modernized more quickly than any other country. Yeah, like overnight. Overnight, yeah. right. And then and then in 1905, which is only about 20 years after, after the – coming out of feudal era, 20, 25 years, what, maybe 30. Coming out of a feudal era 30 years before, they defeated a major world power in the 1905 Russo-Japanese War in a naval battle with all modern technology. So, you know, Japan is really interesting how it's like they're very, you know, dual personality. Um, but I totally 100% agree with what you're saying. And then you do say something in your book, and this is really fascinating, how you felt sometimes the Gracie Academy and the Gracie Method reminded you of that little cultism that you, like – and that's I really want to kind of touch on that. Is that how uh-huh. you're gonna get me in trouble? Yeah, I'm gonna gonna... get you in trouble, right? But you said in your book, so everybody's gonna read it. How you yeah, saw, okay. saw that the Henner and and and, and Hedion and their their charismatic personalities and their belief and and I actually have that problem because yes, great jiu jitsu does have its let's modernize, let's modernize, modernize. But I I as an MMA fighter can say, look, this technique, this armbar that you teach every single day, this armbar from the guard. Is really not best practices in MMA, and, and it doesn't work. And to say that you know, or this whatever technique, it doesn't work, and you're just teaching it. Why are you teaching it? Well, because my granddaddy taught me this way, and we are not going to change it. So I see sort of totally. these these yeah. you know traditional you know elements in Gracie Jiu Jitsu too, and and all Jiu Jitsu and all martial arts. You know, I think the pioneers in one generation always become the reactionaries in another, and it's that the. It has to be – this is how I got to know you because you, you made an article about data and you took a bunch of street fights and did some analysis. And I was like, that's it. That's that's right there. You know, Let's look at the data. I don't care who taught it to you. I don't care where it comes from. I don't care what martial art it is. If it's better and the data shows it works. And you know, there are some times where personally I have some disagreements with my students. Like the student will say, hey, can I do this move this way? And I'm like, mm, I don't know. Like, okay, let's go over it. Oh, you know what? I'm wrong, and that happened to me one major time with the arm triangle. So our academy does the arm triangle a specific way. Came up with one of my students came up with a variation, and we have had so much success with it. I kind of taught him, and then he a certain way of doing it. And he ran with it, took it to level ten in that concept. And I I, I was not an arm triangle guy, and I'm like mm, I don't know if that's the right way to do it. And it was so much better. And we are known as an arm triangle assassin school now because – and that guy was a white belt at the time. 
and at the time I was a brown belt, or I was a purple belt, brown belt. I think I was a brown belt, right? And um, I wasn't a black belt yet. But still, you know, I've been training for years. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. And he's like, no, I really think it's better. I'm like, okay, well, let's prove it. I'm like, you know what, Mike? I'm wrong. You're right. We're changing the curriculum right now. Everybody's going to do it this way. And oh. it, it took me about two weeks to, to, come to have the come to Jesus moment. But, mm-hmm. you know, but the data rules. And if you can show me that, you know, one way is better – I'll do it. And, you know, um, and, and, but it's data and, and, um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 you have to, as, as the leader, you have to also be willing to always, you know, run yourself through that process. Am I doing, is it best practices? Is there something better? If not, why? If yes, why? And, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm certainly no, no to the Gracies and I'm sure they can all kill me, you know, kick my butt 10 times over. But, you know, I see flaws in their approach. And, um, and, you know, hey, I think it's time to examine your failures and why is this not working? Let's look at the data right in front of us. And, you know, this, this, the Gracie Jitsun is – Stephen Kesting talks about it in the self-defense. You ever see the Gracie self-defense program, some of it? Some of it is like old school garbage. And I love the Gracie's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, like some of it. Some of it's great, you know, but some of it's like that shit won't work, especially the knife stuff. Like you're like, that shit won't work. Some of it, some of it, some of it, not all of it. And you're like, that will never fucking work. And and I can also, as a researcher, and I I didn't tell you, but I actually have a, I have a, uh, Menkyo Kaiden in Aiki Jiu-Jitsu as well that I got in the 80s. So I don't I don't really talk about it because, you know, it's not really a big deal. But I, I studied in multiple sides of Jiu-Jitsu, and I'm like, I can say that move from the Gracies, that's one of those old school moves from Japan that didn't get washed out and should have because it just better practices now. And, uh, and it's bullshit. It doesn't work. You know, if somebody tries to stab you, they're not going to stab you with that overhand bullshit. They're going to, you know, they're going to, like, you know, sewing machine piston stab you from the side. And that crap don't work, you know, like, like don't teach it anymore. And yet they well, do, you know, I, you know what I'm saying? You know, so in the book, um, I, I am a product of, um, of Heron and Henner's combatives program in Torrance. And, and I, I traveled to Torrance several times and trained. I did private lessons with some of their, their students. And on the whole, like I'm, I'm big fans of what they're doing. I think yeah, me that too. I, I don't want to watch the whole program. I think the general right. Gracie Compatibles program has a lot, a lot of positive aspects. That's, that's I'm going to, I'm going to make this a compliment sandwich, dude. So like, I'm going to say a good thing and then be critical and then I'll try to say another good thing. Um, so one, I think that they were really the people that led this charge that happened in the last like five to seven years where there's really been a return to self-defense in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I think that they were kind of at the forefront of that. And I'm not going to say they started or that it's it's been all them. But, I mean, those, like, Gracie breakdowns and the way they've done uh, their combatives program in Gracie University, like, that was a big part of it. And I think that's great because the the BJJ community needs that. You know, there's, there's room for the sport and the self-defense to coexist. Um, that being said, you know, one of the criticisms I had in the book was that um, – they they do have kind of a, um, a a culture of authority. You mentioned this earlier, like different kinds of authority, right? And one, they do have the, that sort of tradition, the traditional authority in that it's like, well, why do we do this? Well, this is the way Elio did it. Well, what if Elio didn't do it the best way? No, it's not possible. Right. Because, um, you know, he, he basically, you know, in their narrative, like he had no teacher. He he was basically given the techniques himself, or he made, total you know, he made them up himself. 
Whereas demonstrably you know, false, most mainstream BJJ schools are like, yeah, it was it was Carlos and Elio, and they sort of did it together. And if anything, maybe Carlos was kind of the teacher because he was the older brother, and and he worked with Maeda directly. Uh, Actually, and- that's coming into question too. It it looks like Carlos um, may you know kind of fabricated some of his ranking from Maeda. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of um, you know dis. Um, disinformation from the Gracie camp. It's just, I'll leave it at that. But, you know, it's not, uh, right now, Robert Drysdale's coming out with a book, very, very vigorous, very, very meticulously researched, which shows what the Gracie said was just demonstrably false. And um, the idea that, you know, Elliot Gracie, you know, appeared on the mat one day and was a master, you know, that's bullshit. Yeah. Come on. Like, that's a load of bullshit. And uh, have you ever read, um, you should read um, the biography of Carlos Gracie Jr., and you're going to see how much fantasy thinking exists in the Gracie world as well. I recommend it because as a historical document, but it's like that he can – he felt that he could read minds and like, you know. That was what – his daughter wrote that, right? Yes, Helia Gracie and uh, and uh, I believe it's Helia Gracie. And it's like some really crazy stuff. And and yes, um, you know, there was an element. I think Horian is the one who really was like a Western educated – he was a lawyer. He's like – Let's look at the scientific method here. And and I think the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu developed because it was in the MMA combat world and they had to perform because they were in that MMA combat, the Valley Tudor world, and they drew them to the scientific method. But um, and, and they drew them to refine. And definitely Elio was a, a, a great thinker. And I have this poster on my wall, I'm, you know, and, and, and the Academy, I, we honor his, his legacy. But, you know, there's a myth building behind that reality. And that myth is a load of shit. You know, like like you know, in the the Aikido world, where the main founder of the Aikido dodged bullets. Give me a fucking break. You know, like let's put the fantasy behind us and let's just talk about reality. Why do you have to make, you know, uh, these wild, facetious claims to somehow you know deify your founder? Let's let's not do that. Let's take that charismatic hero worship out of the equation. And if we can evolve, let's evolve. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. You are. Please go ahead. Get back to your sandwich. Yes, get back to your sandwich. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and the other thing, so maybe this won't be a compliment sandwich, guys, but um, <laughs> the the other thing, and it's funny. So I, I write for the Jiu-Jitsu Times, um, one of the the websites, and uh, I've been working on an article, but I'm it's it's hard to get right because I don't want to piss anyone off, um, which is impossible, I guess, because yeah. it's the internet. Yeah. <laughs> but one one of the the casualties of the um, the Gracie, uh, you know, renewal of self-defense focus is that I really think it's created a, a split in the community, which is totally unnecessary and getting a little stupid in my opinion, which is the whole self-defense versus competition thing. And, you know, you mentioned Stephen Kessing, like he put this in really good terms. You know, if, if you're, if there's four BJJ schools in your area and all of them, you know, have students that compete and you want to be the self-defense school, it's in your interest to make what you do seem as drastically different from what they do as possible. And, you know, a lot of the, it's become a weird litmus test. Like when I go to Gracie schools, people are like, Oh, do you compete? And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've competed. You know, I compete a couple times a year and then it's like, Oh, okay. So you're one of those guys. Really? And, it's that real. I had no idea. Really? Yeah. And I think that they've, create an image and I don't think they've done it maliciously or on purpose even, but you know, I think some of their students believe that if you compete or if you go to a competition school, 
then what you're going to see is everyone is doing Barambolo, everyone is pulling guard and butt scooting, and everyone's trying to score advantages. And that's just not true. Like when I first went from a Gracie school to a mainstream BJJ school, I was shocked that they were more or less doing all of the same things. You know, and yeah, they threw in some extra stuff, but like at the white, blue, purple belt level, you know, like they're not doing the cutting edge tournament stuff. You know, they're doing the same thing. They want to take yeah. you down, just fundamentals, and, you know, secure yeah. position and arm bar you. And I realized that this paradigm that I had was false, that it was like you're either self-defense or competition. Like so many guys that compete also are aware of the self-defense curriculum. And, you know, I compete at the Masters Worlds um, last year. And, you know, if you walk around that tournament and you see those dudes warming up in the bullpen, you're like, no one's going to fucking kill these guys in a fight. These guys are, are savages, you know, and and they compete, but like they know what they're doing. And right. uh, that's something that I think we need to improve, which is stop putting people into one of two buckets. Like BJJ is a big world. There's plenty of room for self-defense people to also do a tournament every now and then it'll probably make them better at their self-defense skills and vice versa. Let me, um, let me say how, how radical runs. And I, I am on the, I wouldn't say the self-defense side of BJ, but we always train in a combat jiu-jitsu modality with Eddie Bravo, who's coined speak, who always mixing in strikes with grappling together. Because I do think that your grips, particularly in gi, but not only gi, your grips and your movement change when they're strikes and when they're not strikes. So it's a really big difference. And I don't really draw a distinction between self-defense and MMA other than when we deal with weapons or two-on-one. But, you know, the same leverages that you're going to see in MMA are going to work in a street fight. You're just your, – your tactical orientation has to be different, you know, to, to worry right. about different things. But, you know, there's certain leverages, certain moves that you're going to see in a sport jiu-jitsu tournament that will get you punched in the face. And if you don't know how to adjust – you're gonna you're gonna be in trouble, and I always say you do what you do. If you train ninety percent of the time without strikes, the one time you train with strikes, you're gonna try to do the same thing, and probably not gonna work for you. That being said, you're training your delivery system in combat. You know, I don't believe with a static self defense training without resistance is useful. To me, you know, okay, you wanna you wanna do self defense? I put the gloves on, and let's create a scenario. When we fight and we fight out of that scenario, okay, it's a headlock scenario, it's a butt, gut, uh, you know, bear hug scenario, whatever. Okay, let's fight to the death in this scenario, and then we'll we'll create the rules of when this stops, and and it's basically you would see the same movement in MMA. I mean, I've I've seen you know bear hugs in in on against the cage in MMA. I've seen crappy headlocks, um, you know, in in head in M old MMA. There are people a little bit more advanced now, so they don't do it as much. But Ronda Rousey did a you know Honkesagatame, which is basically a headlock and. You know, yeah, almost got her back taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, like, um, you know, you, you know, to me, the idea that you can drill in a static way and be prepared for combat is is ridiculous. So you have to compete. So for my students, if they're not competing in MMA, which is the goal, or uh, and they're of course sparring on the mat all the time, but what we do is also compete in submission only. I do not support the IBGF um, for a lot of reasons, the points and the rules, but also it's kind of corrupt and. And, you know, there's a lot of back end stuff that I just don't want to support. But also, like, I, I think the 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 way you strategize for IBJF is, is different. But there's the submission only, um, you know, realm, there's which is huge now. And and there's also combat jiu-jitsu. Uh, there's a bunch of tournaments. There's one that just happened in New York, uh, a super fight tournament, combat jiu-jitsu. And there's any problems. one uh, this weekend in Anaheim, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you can, you can compete. And you could also do – there are these um, – 
you know, the army has their pancreation tournaments where it's like, you know, basically the old school pancreas where you just slap instead of punch. So you can you can really ameliorate the the brain damage. And also you could step in the ring and and you know, do a do a do an MMA fight. And and uh, um one of the, one of the 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 um very progressive karate styles in Japan it's called uh Daidojuku. They have gi MMA and they wear specially designed headgear and um they have a masters division just like the IBJF and they really they do stop the the head contact when it gets severe. So you could go in as a 50-year-old a 6-year-old and you basically do a modified MMA fight. Hey, if you can get your way through an MMA fight, you know, you know how to handle yourself, you know? And they 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 really make it Amateur friendly at different different way you know uh, uh, experience levels and and different ages. So you know I'm I'm actually gonna hopefully come back and compete in it. That's one of my dreams. And I'm gonna go to Japan and of course I'll be in like Masters Seven, <laughs> whatever you know, because I'm old as dirt. Uh, but you know I I don't want to see my career you know just not competing anymore. You know competition it it drives you and it also drives you towards the science-based critical thinking mentality versus what we discussed, the authoritarian-based, charisma-based, and tradition-based paradigms, which are faulty by nature and ripe for abuse, whether you're in a taekwondo school at local mall, um, whether you're in an Aikido school, whether you're in uh, Gracie Combatives, or you know, in some sports jiu-jitsu schools. You know, we, we had a discussion about how um, you know, a lot of sports jiu-jitsu schools or whatever schools, you know, we use the word creanche and you have to be loyal to your team. And if you leave your team, you're creanche. Eh, dude, come on. You know, um, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm so over that stuff. It's yeah. like, it's freaking, it's 2018. Like, how about we all be adults and it, just understand that like people, you know, go to different schools and like in, in some situations I, I totally get it, you know, um, if, if it's, you know, if someone promoted you from, from white to brown belt and then you just ditched out on them and like went yeah. to the school down the street or whatever, that's their historical rival. Like, yeah, okay. I yeah. can kind of get that's a little bit different, but right. like for the most part, I think people kind of need to grow up and understand that, you know, there's a free market and, um, and if, if your student leaves, like you should stop and kind of ask yourself, okay, like what was it about me that that made the student leave? If there was anything, like was was it my fees? Was my schedule not strong enough? Was it my teaching style? Right, um, right. But it's much easier just to be like, ah, he's a traitor. Fuck him. Right, you right. Know? And and it defaults to, again to that authoritarian charisma based cultish behavior because really that's a that's a that's a fa- that's a faction of you know maybe it's a lesser degree but it's kind of you know reminds me of what you experienced in your book. It's cultish. It's tribalist. It's in group out group. You know, like what you described. It, you know, you're like you can't train with those guys. You you know, it's funny because. I, I come from the old school where you like you couldn't cross train with another team. It would be like you're a traitor. If you just go and train, like you meet at another day, and that that happened. That got me in trouble once uh, a long time ago. I met uh, off day outside the academy with some friends who trained at another team, and it became a very very big deal. Except when I was in Brazil, let me tell you, this is what happened. I was training with this guy. I won't say his name, but he's like, oh, I was doing some privates with him, and he was from a certain school. And then he's like, hey, you want to train tomorrow on Sunday? I'm like, oh, I thought the academy was closed on Sunday. He said, no, 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 but we go to this place and we train. All the guys from the town, we get together, different teams, and we just train together. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, but you're not supposed to do that. He's like, ah, that's bullshit. Everybody does it here. Anybody good will cross train. And so like the in-group, out-group, that thing is bullshit. And you should be able to train wherever the hell you want. Now, of course, you want to know where your home gym is. You have some loyalty to your teacher. You know, loyalty is important, of course. But the idea that you can never go somewhere else and you create this out-group, in-group thing is 
is based on the instructor's insecurity or the desire for money. And and that is that. And you know, one of the things you mentioned in your book is how much money people pay to this to your instructor, uh, you know, Mister Toribio, and um, and how much he 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 gained financially from a, a you know um, a, that that methodology of you know you you abusing the authoritarian and traditional based paradigms to his his financial benefit. You know, and it's not just in the traditional world. You know, I. Uh, you know, unfortunately, and Lloyd Irving is a good example in 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 the modern world of someone who who has been called out for creating a you know a very unhealthy you know academy culture, and you know that's supposed to be you know very modern and sports jiu-jitsu based or whatever. You know, we all have it. I think you know. Anyway, uh, so we had a we yeah. had a, a program. And I talk about this in the book. It was. Um, it was called an uchideshi program. And uchideshi is a term for like a live-in student in Japan that, you know, instead of coming to the dojo two, three times a week, you could actually live there. And or you could live with the instructor. And, you know, when you're not training, you sweep the mats and, and you know, you, you fold up his his gi and stuff like that. But it, at our school, um, so in the beginning, it was um, like a, a live-in student kind of program. We actually had students live in the dojo. Um and what you did was you signed a contract saying, okay, I'm going to train for one year under you. Um, you pay money, and I think it was monthly, and it was a lot of money. I mean it was like at one point it was $500 a month, I believe. Holy um, God, that's a lot of money. You know, 500 bucks a month for a year, and that's a contract. And that's a person who's probably not working at all. Well, yeah, of course. You yeah. can't work, right? Because you've got to train all the time. So you're talking like $6,000. Yeah, and here's what you got for that. One, you got the ability to train seven days a week, which you could do anyway, so you didn't really get that. Um, but really, you were kind of paying for access because you had, um, you know, you had this special title of, of uchideshi, and and it was perceived that you were training directly under the master. And the other thing was, you will be eligible for belt promotions twice as fast. So in our school, you could get a black belt in about a year. Um, and then, but there were there were ten levels of black belt. Right, so, right, right. you know, you were just starting. After your first black belt, you got to get your second degree, and then your third, and you could get one every year. But if you were an uchideshi, you could get one every six months. Um, however, you would still have to pay for each black belt promotion. So, in a in a weird way, he still got the money. Pay, <laughs> you would you would pay all this money. To be Uchideshi, and one of your perks was the ability to pay more money faster <laughs> to get to get promoted. Sounds like um, sounds I, like I uh, that, you know, know he gave him like a discount or something. or something like that. But at the end of the day, like he's still making you know a lot yeah, of money yeah, from it. Sounds like a, and, you know the pyramid scheme or something. You know, yeah. And you touch it, on that how like, it's like not it was not his money scheme was not sustainable at some point, which is why he closed the dojo. I don't know if that's the only reason, but you know his money scheme was not sustainable because he's just running out of students and 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 going through them too fast. Right, and I I call that the belt machine, which is you know you create a model where you know when you promote when 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 you give someone a black belt, they feel really good about themselves, right? I mean, you felt really good when you got your black belt. Um, so sort of the model was, well, we need to give them more than one black belt and we need to give it to them at a pretty rapid pace because that's what's going to sort of promote student loyalty. And then every black belt will charge them more money. So your first one is maybe like 200 bucks, but your second one is like three. And then I think for my last one, it was it was like $700 oh or something like that. God. I don't remember for sure. So everyone costs more and more. 
But then a problem you have long term, and our dojo existed for um, over 20 years before it shut down, was that we ended up promoting students faster than we could acquire new ones to the point where, you know, in 2012, when you walk in the dojo, not only is every single student a black belt, but every single student is like a fifth, sixth, seventh degree black belt. Yeah. And but, you know, that's the- not so different from like your local Taekwondo schools, because, you know, now you have four year old black belts, too. It's just the only difference is there are new kids being born and coming in faster, which is why the 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 machine of of marketing is so important. But so, I mean, I totally get what you're saying, but I don't think that's so unique, unfortunately, very unfortunately. But, you know, using the belt as this like serotonin oxy- oxytocin boost, you know, it brings in that happy place. It makes you so happy where really the belt shouldn't be the goal. Like, you know, you said I was happy when I got my black. You know, I was, you know, I, I would lie if I said it wasn't. But at the same time, you know, I'd already put in 14 years. It was like, yeah, okay, I got my black belt. You know, basically, you know, when I got my black belt, I was like, okay, now nobody will question my legitimacy because I had the piece of paper. But right. um, but it wasn't like a big deal for me. The the most the mo the most significant deal for me was my very first Valley Tuta fight, where I you know was like scared shitless and you know like that getting through that the first camp it was that experiential, the belt was like blah you know I think because I was also older and more mature and I so many times put on a black belt and taken it off like I got my judo black belt then I took it off and put a white belt on in jiu jitsu I you know I had my karate black belt took it off to put you know I you know I I have a lot of instructor ranks in different styles and so every time I evolved I just put the white belt on again I'm like well whatever this is just like you know formality and I think that's one reason why I'm, I I like to think my head is in the right place because I had these huge doses of humility and got it getting my butt kicked like, you know, I was a karate black belt and I walked into a judo school in Japan. I already had some judo training, but, you know, I wasn't anything special. Walked into a mat and the very first person I did randori with was John Balin, who went to the Olympics. And he crushed me so bad. I, I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I, I can't do anything. And, uh, and, and so, you know, humility made me not care about outside achievement rather than technical achievement but yeah i would lie if i said i wasn't happy about my black belt but you know i always tell my students and this is one thing i love about nogi is like you don't know what rank the person is so the ranks don't matter when you wear it around yeah, your waist awesome. yeah you That's wear it around your waist you know. about 10th planet yeah There's yeah no yeah yeah like you don't care you don't know who you're rolling with it's just can you tap me can you not tap me and you know um and you basically understand people's rank after you roll with them to some extent and especially my academy everybody knows what you know there's a big difference between white belt and blue belt my my blue belts are i would say more equivalent to the the current standard today would be like a a, a purple belt you know and uh because we're kind of like old old school but nobody really cares like they don't care blue belt white belt doesn't matter just let's roll and let's try to tap each other and and we you know does it work and so it takes everything out of the picture. Whereas when you're walking around with your gi and this thing hanging around your waist and, you know, you start, you know, being big man on campus, you know, people desire that extrinsic goal. And we're all, we're all fallible human beings, but we want that, like, validation, that external validation, which is, to me, exactly what martial arts is not supposed to be. It's all about the internal validation. If you look at, you know, what Miyamoto Musashi wrote in the Book of Five Rings, you know, any of these old school Japanese philosophies, you can see how much they've actually been perverted, whether it's here in America where it's really perverted or even sometimes like Hatsumi in Japan where 
who is regarded almost universally as a total shyster, but against you know for real uh, martial artists. And I, I have a story about that, but I don't. I don't. I want to give the mic back to you, and we can finish up. Um, one of the things uh, I would just like to have you some final thoughts um, um, about your martial art journey and 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 the book and and anything else you'd like to say. Um, you know, with the. With the belts and the promotion, the the other aspect of it was that it was it was tied into this sort of religious uh, notion of ascension. So, you know, every black belt signified that you had, um, in our sort of jargon lingo, that we had that you had passed through a gate and that you were kind of climbing the ladder to uh, to enlightenment or, or or healing or freedom. And that made it even more enticing because every belt was – it didn't feel like just a validation of our skill, but it felt like, you know, like we sort of in this weird kind of Scientology way, like we had we had ascended to the next level and we were going clear, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and it, it created this odd kind of funny thing that we were promoting so fast, our highest ranking black belts were mostly very young people, you know, people that weren't even like 30 yet. So – you know, you can imagine this this like twenty six year old guy, and he he's a seventh degree black belt, which would be like a legend in any other martial art. But he's twenty seven. He started training four years ago because he was like a Uchideshi the whole time, and he really thinks that he's completely enlightened. You know, because yeah. he's he's done the whole process and the seven gates, and that's where I felt in one of many ways, it really became unhealthy because I don't care who you are. No one has their shit together when you're not even 30 yet. You, yeah. know, you might be a little bit ahead of your peers and stuff, but I think it's dangerous to be that young and think that you are a martial arts master. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's <laughs> it's not just, healthy, it, right? It's, yeah. It's, 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 it's absolutely ludicrous. It's just ludicrous. Yeah, totally. Um, but um, but yeah, um, thank you for that uh, last final thought on the belts and stuff and and how they how it worked there. And I really recommend anybody to pick up the book to really get the full story. And also for martial artists, even if you're not in a in a full on unhealthy cult, like I said, there's so many aspects that we can say. Let's not do this at our academy. Okay, I'm in an unhealthy relationship. My t- instructor is this is not cool. You can be in any martial art and feel that way. Um, to some extent, you know, but anyway, like I said, I would like to have some, uh, some more final thoughts from you on your martial journey or anything else you'd like to, to finish up the conversation with. So maybe the last thing I've been thinking about since we started talking is there was a couple times where you, you sort of came back and you said, well, what you just said is maybe not as uncommon, um, because I've seen it being done here. I've seen it being done here. And I think that's a really important point, Renee, which is, one of the reasons I felt like the book needed to get written and published was because of that very reason. Like it's, it's not that uncommon. Uh, and people need to hear that because I think we were kind of at an extreme, but there's a lot of places that are floating just up against that extreme and maybe they're not there yet. And this could be a healthy book for them. And sort of the line that, that I draw with martial arts schools is, I always think like, you know, only promise what you know you can deliver on, which is that, you know, you are good at training students in X martial art. And if you come here and you sign up and you pay me money, then I'm going to teach you those skills and you're going to get good at them. And hey, if along the way you learn something about yourself, 
you even out your personal life a little bit, you become a better person and you credit me for that, then that's great. Like I'm, I'm happy that you did that, but I'm not going to promise something that I can't deliver on, which is, you know, this is not therapy. Uh, this is not a place where you're going to heal traumas. Um, and, and this is not a place where you're going to have revelations and maybe you will, but I'm here to teach you martial arts. And as right. long as we engage on that realm, like we're going to be fine. And everything else you get from that is extra credit. Uh, that's a, that's an amazing thought. I also think it's like, um, there's, there's a great quote, um, um, uh, uh, from Pico Iyer, who's a, a spiritualist, and he said, you know, spirituality is water, and we all need spirituality. Religion is the cup, and c- cup can exist without water, but water can't, you know, you can't have, you know, you need water. Everybody needs water. And I think martial arts is, you can have these great, um, great eureka moments in your martial art training, but it first has to be with the sustenance of what it is, the martial arts. You got to put yourself in the real work. And yeah, if you really work, you can make yourself a healthier version of yourself, first physically healthy. Then you you start thinking more positive thoughts about competition. So you know you have to get your mental game in, in order. You have to start doing some dig, dig, deep, deep, you know, thought about why you're scared or this or that, why you're not performing. And it's that road of self-improvement. But at the same time, at the end of the day, it's are you on the mat doing martial arts? And if you're not really training and really sweating and really bleeding, there's never going to be any physical growth. And I I can't promise physical growth, uh, mental growth. Sorry. I can't promise mental growth, but I can promise you I'll teach you how to fight. <laughs> and uh, and then hopefully we can transcend that. And there's there's a coach Rodney King. He's based in South Africa, and he he's really trying to bridge that in a in a rational way. He's just got his PhD in psychology, and he's like, let's let's look at what we can do in martial arts and apply that to bettering ourselves. At what he calls it inner warriorship. And I think that's a good way. It's a very healthy way to say, okay, I'm now a PhD in psychology. I, I've done some clinical work of this. Let me take martial arts and adapt it in this way. And and he does it in a very scientific way. So I, I haven't seen very too many programs that that were as scientific as he, he, his is where he's literally saying, okay, now I can have this kind of self-help style because I've actually got my PhD and I've done clinical work. You know, whereas, you know, if you're just some, you know, on the corner of Taekwondo master, whatever, how, how are you qualified to help anybody? Have you, have you studied, you know, trauma? Have you studied this, that? No, you haven't. You have not qualified to do that at all. So um, I'm not saying you can't grow as a person. And I've actually seen some people come out of the traditional world um, and they've had some wonderful benefits. But, um, but you know, I've also seen abuse of, of that paradigm as well, you know. Um, thank you so much for being here and talking with us. It was a great conversation to go back and forth. And I know we t- kind of went back and forth on certain points and maybe I agreed, we disagreed, but I, I think this conversation was invaluable for my personal growth. Um, and, and I just want to say thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very Dude, much. You're the man. Thank you so much for contacting me. It was a, it was a great conversation. Um, Matt, you know, thanks for being here. I was, I was in the room. <laughs> Every now and then. Uh, before we let you go, we want to make sure everybody knows the book is called The True Believers, available on Amazon Kindle. Um, and you guys should check it out because it, eventually it's probably going to become a movie or something, right? There's, there's, I think that's great. No, absolutely not. No? No? You no. know, I, no, I, I, I don't think so. It's, it's not meant to be that. It's, um, the last thing I really want is for it to become like too popular. Um, I, I like, you know, anonymity and just, just having it be a good story out there. Um, and also it, 
you know, we didn't talk about this, but in the book, we we delve into like some of the really nasty stuff that happened in the organization, and there were accusations of of yeah. sexual abuse and and really dangerous stuff with treatment of women and things like that. And just out of respect for people involved, I don't think it should be that way. Um, I I don't want to sensationalize any of that, and I don't even talk about that in the marketing for the book. Um, just out of respect for everyone involved. So um, so yeah, just keep it where it is. All right, fair enough. Yeah, no. uh, but still, check it out on Kindle, uh, uh, true, The True Believers by yeah. Lewis Martin. And were you you started running a sale on the book or something? Was that? You mentioned that last week. or? Um, um, I run it, um, you know, from periodically. I just had it last week and it ended. But the Kindle version is, I think, six bucks. Yeah. So, you know, it, who doesn't have six bucks? You can buy it and forget about it. And then you look at it later like, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to read that. Um, there is a, a nice paperback if you want it. Um, and that's, I think, $15. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, it was, I have to say, you are a very, very uh, gifted writer as well. You know, you're not just a talented martial artist. Um, you, you have a, a skill as a wordsmith. And it's, it's, it's a well, well-written book that I enjoyed uh, tremendously. Well, thanks, man. And uh, you write for uh, some other publications. Do you want to mention where people can find you and any other things you've written? Yeah. So um, I am the... I guess managing editor editor for a website called yujujitsu.com and um, we're a pretty small kind of startup uh, a website. We do a lot of news articles, things like that. And then I'm a monthly contributor for the Jujitsu Times. I usually write like two articles a month. Um, oh, and uh, I'm a, a monthly columnist for a great uh, traditional martial arts website called the Marshall Journal. And uh, they have their own podcast network, and and that's run by uh, Jeremy Lesniak, and and he's a great guy too. Fantastic! Thank you so much, and uh, I hope we can continue our. We had a great conversation last week, uh, just online, and I hope we can continue um, uh, collaborating together because I, I hope to meet you in, in in one day and and continue uh, you educating me through your experiences, and and um, someday maybe we can you know share the mats together too. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, come to California and and uh, look me up, and I'll do the same if I come to New York. You have a place to stay for sure. I have one more question. Uh, I just need your quick response. Uh, Cejudo versus Dillashaw. What do you oh, got? coming up. Yeah. Um. You know, I just think Dillashaw is maybe a little bit better of an all arounder, and he's got the size advantage. Um. Yeah, I think that one. Unless Cejudo can really prosecute the ground game. Uh, it's going to be a tough road for him. But he surprised me before. Yeah, mm. me too. I'm picking Dillashaw too. Yeah, I think we're all in the Dillashaw camp. All right. What all round, right. Matt? You want to bet? I'm not betting anymore. I'm not allowed. <laughs> My wife says no. Oh, you know, you guys bet with each other. For what it's worth, people disagree with me. I think uh, Sarah GSP will always be considered like the biggest upset. But honestly, I think Dillashaw Burrell was one of the biggest upsets of all time. Oh, for sure. Like no one picked Dillashaw coming in. And he didn't just get lucky and knock out Burrell. Like he dismantled him over five rounds. And that's like the forgotten upset in, in history, I think. No, you know, actually, I, I, I talked about that with one of my students. I totally agree with you. It's, it That shows the paradigm shift because Burrell's striking, you know, was was it's kind of old school. is the old school MMA striking. And he was like – Oh, I've people have evolved now, and I don't have an answer for this. And it 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 was the death knell of the old style, and you just have to evolve past that. And I, I always point to that fight where it was just a five round beatdown, and uh, and just technique, and it, no moment did Dillish did DeBrow ever have an answer to to Dillashaw. And not to say that he was 
terrible martial artist, but he's a person of his time. Like Chuck Liddell coming out today, he just wouldn't even be a contender. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's we fast. evolved. You know, and uh, and um, it's fascinating to see that. So no, great. Thanks for that wonderful point. All right, we'll see what happens on Saturday. We will. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks. And that was a great conversation. Matt, I'm sorry I took the air for so long. You, I like when you have the air. <laughs> I suck the air out of the room, you know? <laughs> but um, it, was, it was a real pleasure. And, um, and I think, you know, the last final thought would be, you know, we always have to take some critical thinking to, our, to whatever process we do and be wary of charismatic leaders who give us easy answers. You know, life is not filled with easy answers. People want like an easy solution, this, that. And, uh, you know, whether it's fighting, whatever, uh, whether it's the internal work you want to do, there's never an easy answer. And anybody, you know, shooting that is just, you know, selling you snake oil. Not unlike some people who are in the news today as leaders of our nation. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> we lost all the conservative <laughs> listeners now. Yeah, <laughs> Bye, Mom. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Mom. <laughs>